This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can uh, send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, to me, bigger than COVID, bigger than climate change, bigger than the economy, bigger than everything that we confront is this thrust and drive of gender ideology, because I think it could destroy us all. And it's not just about sport. It's about who we are and what we are as a country. And I don't think people appreciate the threat, but I believe on the 25th of March, it changed, it turned around, and we saw the true horror of what we're confronting. And the 25th of March, of course, was the public meeting of Kelly J. Keane, known as Posey Parker, to allow a woman to speak, which was violently shut down, aided and abetted by our political leaders, our legacy media, activists who were given an unfettered platform to spread their hate and lies about Kelly J. Keane, who's a wonderful, brave woman, and our police, who disgustingly wouldn't go to the aid of women. Well, we're privileged this morning to have a lady who was there, and she's agreed to speak to me. And I consider it to be a wonderful honour and a privilege that she would speak to me. And it's Linda Sutton. Good morning, Linda. Morning, Rodney. It's a privilege to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. We want to understand that day because we weren't there. And I realise I was traumatised by it and I wasn't there. So I realise that for you, it must have been horrific and now very hard to talk about it. So we want to make it very gentle for you, okay? Thank you. Tell me how you came to be at Albert Park on the 25th of March. It started um, in February when uh, I became aware that Kelly J was um, playing with the idea or talking about coming to New Zealand. And I... You knew of her already? I had um, stumbled upon her on YouTube, um, watched some of her work. I'd heard people mention her name somewhere, and I can't even remember how or when. But I'm the sort of person that go, oh, let me just go find out a little bit about this person because there was some horrible things being said. And the words didn't seem to match what I was finding. So I did a little bit of digging and watched some of the previous, um, some of her um, TV interviews that are up on online, etc. And she resonated because with me because it seemed so straightforward and uncomplicated that um, saying you can't change sex that um, seemed to me like a touchstone. You can certainly change how you appear, but you can't change your sex. And um, then what happened was as I was listening to more of what she said, not just her but people interviewing her, 
So there were other people. Then I followed some other people that were discussing the same subject. Um, at that stage, I really had no idea the insidious um, creep of the um, queer ideology into, uh, in fact, the the threads of our society in as much as um, the word woman was being erased and the more I listened and the more I watched, I became quite perplexed by that. I was like, as a woman, a mother and a grandmother, a daughter and a granddaughter. And a wife. The difference of who I am is that I am I, I'm a grown woman. I'm an adult human female. I don't even need to define myself, but if somebody needs me to define it, I really wouldn't get into a paragraph about it. I'd just say, well, I'm a woman, an adult human female, and um, and then I probably, previous to this, would have got relatively bored with even talking to anyone about it because it's so obvious. So I looked into who she was. I heard she was coming. I watched um, some of the old footage of Let Women Speak, and I really liked this idea of an open mic and allowing women to just take the microphone and speak. Some people said poems. Some people said wise other things. But it was really very... um, I can't think of the word, but it, the more I watched, the more I thought, I want to be part of this. And women need to be able to say, no, you can't have our identity. You No, just no. And you can't have our children. And the women were very clearly the last line of defence for our children. And mothers, no, you can't buy into any of this because... Our children need to be growing adults before they make these kind of decisions. So that's why I I guess for me it was really simple. Why not? Let's have a let women speak. Kelly J's gonna come. She will bring um, a spotlight that no one else was bringing. She has a charisma about her lover or hater. You don't even have to agree with everything she says because her format is that she facilitates the microphone. She brings the attention and then she hands over the microphone. And anybody, you don't have to be anybody. You can be any woman. You don't have to be profiled. You just need to be a woman. Easy. So that's how I got involved. So I found a Facebook page. And I joined it, and then I messaged the Facebook page and said, is there anything I can do, actually do, to help this this grassroots group of women to um, bring this event to life? I'm in Auckland. I'm on the ground. I've got time. I've got energy. Um I'll help. So that was back in February. And um, the 
the core organisers of the group messaged me back and said, who are you and have you got anyone that can vouch for you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> it just, I was like, yeah, my kids? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know any gender critical people. I don't belong to any organisation. I don't know anybody. So I had a FaceTime call from two of the members of the core and they spoke to me for a considerable, vetted me to see if I was legitimately, I had no idea there was this huge opposition that we needed to be afraid of. And dangerous people trying to infiltrate. Yes, I had no aware. So I was like, I don't even know why I need to be verified. What's wrong with you people? Clearly I am who I am. You know, like I didn't see the danger. So I got through the vetting process and the first thing that happened was um, I said that I could sew. So I volunteered to make the Let Women Speak banner that you saw in all the images, with the co and all of that. So um, I'd never actually, I mean, I know how to sew, never made a banner. I certainly hadn't grafted up letters. And I did this applique of a koai, which I hand did and applique on and hours on that. And um, I used fabrics that I'd had here for 30 years. <laughs> That's shaming me. But anyway, I've had them for 30 years. So that was what I first volunteered for. And then they asked for um, someone to step up and be marshalling on that day or stewarding. And I didn't know what it was, but I thought, well, heck, why not? I'll do that. And then they said, we need a head marshal. And I said, look, I'm happy to be head marshal unless there's someone else who is more qualified for the job and then I'll just step back. But in the meantime, I'll make the step forward on the volunteer line and do it. I just paused you there, Linda. Sorry. because this matters, because you're thinking head marshal, I'll just direct people. How tall are you? <laughs> Five foot. Because that matters in the scheme of things as it transpires, doesn't it? Yes. You're five foot. under 60 kgs. Yeah, you're a five foot slight grandmother, head mm. marshal. So you volunteered to be head marshal? I volunteered to be head marshal, and um, I had no idea really what that involved. Well, I had no idea what I was stepping up for, but no one fought me for the job. Um, (laughs) That should have been a sign. So then there were some Zoom meetings organised from the UK, from the lady that runs the marshals or stewards for all of the Let Women Speak. Still, I don't think she grasped the time zone and thought we could do one with Auckland and Perth. (laughs) Anyhow, I missed the first one. I got the second one and I took screeds of notes. What was the job? What do we do? All this. And I wrote them all down. Then I I typed them up in a transcript and I um, sent it through to the core to my contact at the core and said, have I got this right? And then to cut a long story short, I set up Zoom meetings um, once a week with all the marshals and 
at 7.30, one night or every week, and I would come on and try and make sure everyone understood the role. So to understand the role of a marshal is really, really, there's all sorts of bits, but the most basic thing is, and our role on that day, which is crucial for people to understand, is the women that stepped forward to be marshals, their job was to stand behind the people that came to what to talk or listen, stand behind those people and keep them facing forward. Make sure they didn't engage with anyone that was yelling at them or making noises. To keep all our posters or anything that had anything written on it facing forward to the band rotunda and not have any interaction. And so we would be walk around and if anyone was tempted, we'd just tap them quietly on the shoulder and say, if you want to be in this circle, you must show restraint and you must face the front and away from any distraction. Perfect. We weren't there to physically protect anyone. And in the day before, in the, my last Zoom meeting, I spoke to um, the, I had the person on the Zoom meeting from the core um, who, and that question was asked about the security. I said to her, my marshals are not there to put their bodies on the line or get hurt. The security that is coming on that day, beyond the police, so set aside the police, are there to support us. And I was assured they were. Um, Were you interacting with the police yourself? Okay, so I also volunteered to be the police liaison officer. (laughs) (laughs) You go in boots and all. And just even as I think about it, I look back now and go, goodness, what were you thinking? Anyway, I also said I've never had any interaction with the police. I've had my driver's licence since I was uh, 18, 15 or 18, I think it was a long time ago. I was a bit of a slow starter on the driver's licence. But anyway, I've had one speeding ticket and my whole driver's licence. That's my interaction with the police. So I said, I have no idea what, how this works, what's involved, but, hey, how hard can it be? I'll yeah. ask. I'll phone a friend. I'll pop into the local police station and I'll find out. So I put my hand up to be the police liaison. So now I'm head marshal, police liaison for Auckland, busily sewing my banner, of which I made three more other banners as well. Um, and... As soon as I got the, I stepped forward for that role, what I did was I took myself into my local police station and said, hello, introduce myself. Can I talk to a police officer and find out how I do my role as in this event to coordinate with the police to make sure that I do the best job I can? What's expected of me from the police? And I did that on the 5th of March. So that was my first contact. Sadly, there are no police in that police station. What? No police. Sorry, there are no policemen that can talk to you today. Okay, are they just at lunch or something? I'll wait. No, no, don't know when they'll be back. Can't talk to you. And they gave me an email. And I said, I really don't want to ask these questions over email. I want to actually physically show somebody who I am, like who this person is, and sit and talk because I felt that 
there would be more information exchanged in there. Anyway, I did send the email and I got an, uh, an email back and then I got a phone call um, and he said, why are you talking to me? <laughs> why, why are you talking to me? And I said, well, I actually rang the 105 number for the police who, and they told me I could talk to a police officer. They said, just go into your local police station, which I did, even though the event was in Auckland and it already had a file number at that point. Um, he said, no, well, you shouldn't, you don't need to be talking to me. I'll forward your email to the right person at Auckland Central and they'll contact you, which they duly did. Mm. And that's when I started my conversations with the police. Did you meet them? No, they never wanted to meet me. And what was the nature and summary of what the police said they would be doing on the day? I'm one of these people, I take people on face value. This is the New Zealand Police Force. This is Auckland Central. It's quite interesting. I'll try and break it down because I hadn't thought about it for a while. But in essence, I was informed Albert Park was a public park. Mm-hmm. Let Women Speak had lodged an application to have an event in and in front of the Bandro Tundra in Albert Park. This event had a map, had a timeline on it of when and what and who. Um, there were instructions on there as to where the fences should go, distance from the Bandra Tundra, how it should be set up, when it will be set up. They were aware of all of this. So I was really just speaking to them to say, how will you deal? I was expecting a little bit of opposition because early on, it was before Kelly J got to Melbourne and I'm just going to retract, go backwards a little bit. My first conversation with the sergeant, which I won't name for now because he's currently in Bougainvillea, who'd have thought it? Um, He's been assigned offshore. Anyway, he said to me, New Zealand is not, because I said, have you seen Let Women Speak events overseas? Because she's only just really started going overseas. I suggest you have a look at the one that happened in New York. It was horrendous. And we just don't want that to happen here. We need the police to be um, present. And when I say present, I mean you can see them. They're there. They're wandering around. In my mind, you, you see them. And he said, yes, okay, well, we're not America and New Zealanders aren't like like that. So I don't think there's going to be any trouble. This is what the police officer said. And I said, okay, I still think you should have a look at what did happen and familiarise yourself with the format that is Let Women Speak because it's all on YouTube. He assured me that the police have an intel department and I was very by that because I said I don't have one of those and that they would be monitoring the chatter or words to those effects. So I felt very reassured. So time went by and we got to the 20th of March and I hadn't heard back from anyone. And in my special world, I thought that's because they're just busily monitoring the intel and there's nothing to see here and it's all a beautiful thing of butterflies and rainbows. And then Melbourne happened and I was watching what was happening across Australia and it kept escalating and escalating. So I made the call and I contacted 
I emailed the police again and I said, I haven't heard from anyone who's supposed to be running the police in Auckland on that day. I'm getting concerned given what's happened in Melbourne. Can someone please contact me? And within a very short period of time on that same day, I get my first phone call from Sergeant Sean Richardson, very pleasant man. Now, he had been CC'd into all the emails up until that point and beyond. And we made contact, and we had a number of phone calls beyond that point. It was all phone calls or text calls. Sean didn't um, email me. It was sort of like as things happened, he would pick up the phone and call me or whatever. So I felt very much I was in the loop with this man and that he was understanding. I was going saying things like I was concerned about the noise that might happen because this seems to be a theme that was running through. To drown out the women's voices. Yeah. Like let's shut them down by making noise. That was what, in my mind, I thought was the worst possible thing that we would be dealing with in Albert Park. So I had conversations with Sean Richardson in regard to the noise, and I said, look, let's be clear when we're talking noise, we're talking about um, taking these noise machines that are making sirens like your house is on fire, evacuate the building, you know, like there's a tidal wave coming. And I said, I would have thought there'd be regulations about how you can set these things off because they're warning sirens. And, yeah. if, like, you can't just go around beeping your car horn. You know, that, that is actually an infringement. Yes, of course. Uh, right? And, so and, oh, and a denial of free speech. Yes. So I said, they're using this to close us down, but I said it's a violent noise. And I said, they get right in people's faces, like in the, we're not talking about squeezing it up in the air, up into the sky. They are directing this noise directly physically at women and will you be able to do anything about that he said yes we'll step in and take those noise machines away if they're being used in a violent way and do you believe or understand that sean was aware by then of what was happening in australia oh he was definitely aware of it great because that shocked me you know i don't watch tv or follow the radio news but I was aware from social media what was happening in Australia, and that's how I first became aware of Kelly J. Keene. And then I couldn't believe that this was becoming a potential flashpoint here. But the police were aware. The the contact man you had, Sergeant Sean Richardson, was aware of what was happening in Australia. And so was the other sergeant, who was also called Sean, ironically. In Bougainvillea now. He's in Bougainvillea currently because I emailed him the other day and got an out-of-office reply. (laughs) So as far as you're concerned now, this is great. You haven't had your in-person meeting, but you've had lots of chats and talks, and they are aware of what's happening in Australia, and these horrid people that want to shut down women from speaking will have their noisy machines taken by the police as an infringement of public peace and order or free speech Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so you're thinking, way cool. Everything's good in the world. It is. On the back of such a positive interaction and 
when I'm bringing up my concerns, I'm getting reinforcement of actions that will be taken. And I'm reporting back to my marshals in my Zoom meetings that I'm having these conversations and we're all fabulous, mate. At least I keep saying I can only take people on their word. I don't have a crystal ball, but this is all really positive feedback. I'm going to say, Linda, if I ever need a head marshal, you're my pick. Because for a lady that's never done it before, you were doing a fabulous job and you're taking it seriously. I did. You know, I have my little notebook where I was writing stuff down as I went along. I suffer from a little bit of dyslexia, so I have to keep an eye on myself. And anyway, so it's all going fabulously. I'm reporting back to say I'm having positive um, interactions with the Auckland police. I'm being told by my counterpart in Wellington that they're not having such a fabulous time, that down in Wellington, the mayor of Wellington wouldn't allow them to have a permit to have an event, and it actually took a lawyer's letter to point out that they couldn't stop them having this event. Wellington was going to be much larger than Auckland. Auckland really was just a bit of a hop skip before you get to the big kahunas down in Wellington, right? Mm-hmm. Right outside Parliament, that's mm-hmm. where it was all going to happen. That's where the voices were going to be heard. That's where all the Trouble. women's liberation, feminists, even women from Auckland were flying to Wellington. Wow. They were going to Wellington and not to Auckland. Auckland was just like a bit of a warm-up event. There was a definite feeling coming through to me, carry on, keep going, but, but really all about Wellington. Can I just interrupt you, Linda? Through, were you communicating with Kelly J. Keane's team and uh, she was aware or her team were aware? Okay, so just to be 100% clear, I was not on the core organising committee. I was not invited into it and I was not present at any Zoom calls. Okay, but you were reporting to them? I was reporting to them. Got it. Obviously, your vetting came up a little short. Yeah, well. No, I'm teasing. They had enough people. They were, I. they didn't need me. They, yeah. they, they're all over it like a rash down there. These are women I found out later are the movers and the shakers of all things that I'm yeah. not involved in. Anyway, back to Auckland. So even though Sean Richardson said, no, no, we're going to deal with these noise machines, I didn't take him on his word. So I started going and reading Auckland City Council governances on noise and I started reading all these documents. I ran through to Auckland Council's noise control people. My conversation, I don't need to repeat it, but it was about the noise. Where I was informed, there's a bit of an anomaly about noise when it comes to the noise control officers. When people make noise in a park, anyone, like if, upsetting your peace and tranquility in a public park. You can, in fact, make a complaint to noise control and they will come down and do something about it. However, when it's an event, then they won't because the event is something Auckland City Council has sanctioned. So if someone has a problem with an event with noise, then it's the police that deal with it and not the noise control. 
So even if all the people that had been there on that Saturday and the small group of people in the front had picked up their phones and rung the noise control, <laughs> the noise control that <laughs> said ring the police. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And I was, I'm sorry, Ronnie. I just was like, you couldn't write this script. No. So uh, luckily you had the police on board. And I was thinking, that's great. So the police have already said they're going to deal with the noise. And, and I was thinking noise control could just be a backup, mm -hmm. you know, a backup to the backup. Mm -hmm. So, um, but no. So I thought, okay, because women were coming through um, to me saying, well, we'll ring noise control because they were concerned about these noise machines that were going to be used, understandably. Um, people were told to be taking earplugs to protect their ears from the noise. And so I looked into it because I thought someone's going to ask me how do we deal with this on an individual basis rather than the event organisers. So that's where that went. So the noise, the police had dealt with it. We're moving right along. I get a call on the Thursday. I'm going to leave a little bit of the detail out because it's long. But anyway, on Thursday... So just also whilst I'm head marshal, sewing the banners, talking to the police, I'm also coordinating with the sound man who was bringing the speakers and microphone, meeting him. I had two meetings with him at Albert Park. I also contacted the security people to introduce myself to them and asked them what their plan was and how they wanted me to communicate with me. They had assured, well, he had assured me that when he turned up on that day, that he was going to give me a, um, of some kind. I don't know. Never done this before. Anyway, I thought, oh, wow, okay. Because, you know, if there's a lot of noise. He said, if there's a lot of noise, you won't be able to hear me communicating. And I was going to be at the back yes. in this fenced area coordinating with the police and keeping things calm. So I was to get a comms. I also had fielded calls from Auckland City Council the people in charge of issuing the event, allowing the event to happen. What else did I do? I printed posters. I got posters printed at the warehouse stationery and they refused to print them to start with. That was a battle I had on the woman's, you know, woman's day, and I can't think of what you call it. Anyway, um, I went in, I sent them in. They said they would print them, these posters. I'd been asked to do it by the Corps or I volunteered to do it by the Corps, and I printed all the posters for Auckland and Wellington, and the girls behind the counter got very woke on me and told me I was printing hate speech. No because, way. No way. Yeah. This, was, this wasn't, this wasn't um, coming down from head office. This was the staff on the yes. desk at Warehouse Stationery. Yes. Refusing your business. Yes because it was hate speech, because it was promoting Kelly J. Keane. Well, no, it didn't even say anything about Kelly J. Keane. And the irony of it was you email your posters through for them to be printed. Yes. And one of the posters was a little bit disturbing, <laughs> a lot disturbing. It was of medical procedures that people had posted oh, yes. of themselves. So I got in my car after I sent it thinking, oh, geez. Mate, I better just, like, cover off on this. Drove in, spoke to the girl, and I said, look, I hope you haven't opened that email yet. Oh, no, I haven't. Okay, good, because there's one in there. Now, if you have a problem with that one, absolutely just set it to one side. 
because it's got images on. She said, not a problem, open them up. She said, look, what we'll do is I'll print all of these before the warehouse stationery opens because the printing machine rolls the images off the front behind the counter. And I said, fabulous. When I went to pick them up, I picked them up. I paid for them all. I picked up a roll of posters. I bought them home. And then I opened them and I was missing six posters. So I jumped in my car and went back in and said, look, you've missed print. So they didn't do double for Auckland and Wellington. They'd done doubles of some and not of others. So I just went in and said, look, I'd like to get these extra posters. You seem to have missed them. And that's when it all went nasty. And they told me that I, it was hate speech. And um, I went through each poster and said, which part of these posters is hate speech? One of them said, sis, my ass." I thought that was a great poster, personally. Great speech. Great poster. There was nothing hateful in any of them. And ironically, they had printed the poster that I had said not to print. I already had that one. And the ones they hadn't printed were pretty benign. So do you think their opposition to printing these was them or head office? It was them. With but they had the nod from head office. They'd had a bit of a meeting of the committee because um, the warehouse stationery has the rainbow tick and um, they embrace inclusivity. And I don't mean to be rude, um, but I think it matters in an identity politics age. The people that you were dealing with yes, on the desk were women. Yes. Women, young women. So Young, what, 20, my children in their 20, 20, yeah. Isn't there a sisterhood? Oh, that's a complicated question to answer. No, because it's so odd, isn't it? You, it, well, you're a bit stunned. I mean, I'm stunned. Well, to be honest, I'm not, because I've seen it in school teachers who are similar age and a similar view, and you wonder where it comes from. And I'd always assumed university, but I'm guessing these ladies hadn't been to university were you a bit stunned and mortified by their attitude that sis my ass, even if they don't agree with that, is sufficient for them not to be able to print it? It was the first time I've actually been at the coalface of somebody attacking me. I mean, they were quite aggressive. I remained calm for quite a while. Then I thought this is my moment to, you know, <laughs> not be so calm. And I got a little loud. And I stood there and I said, I'm not leaving the store without the posters that you've agreed to print and that I have paid for that you've already given me. Your argument is a moot point because you've already given me the posters. This is just the double ups. So you've already printed them. I've already paid for them and you've already handed them to me. So I'm not leaving. We'll refund you the money. And I said, no. I want my posters. I said, do you check every document you print to make sure that it doesn't say a hate speech and you agree with everything? No. And I said, well, print my posters. It's just that simple. And in the end, I did get my posters and um, from another warehouse stationery via a little bit of covert operations, I got every single poster printed. It's a peculiar thing. and to me, inexplicable that you counter that opposition. I mean, this is the world that we're in. 
And I mean, you're sitting there and that's part of your loud, shouty voice because you can't comprehend it. Yeah, it's like, I don't understand. I am a woman and I much more. I try to reason with them and say, you know, I actually know someone, a male who has lived an entire adult life presenting as a female. Mm. And that person stands with me. Mm, they do. Not you, right? Mm. And so many regrets later, you know, lots of conversations and a, a body riddled with all sorts of problems because of what happened. And I'm going to, I'm saying, what's so, I'm, I'm trying to get through to these girls. I don't understand what your fight is. I'm, is, can you, I said, can you change sex? But the, the, the thing was that when they run out of arguments, it all becomes non-binary and fluid. Yes. And then you just kind of like, hey, okay. So I got a bit of I entertainment for a little while in the warehouse station while Linda stood her ground and got a bit loud. Yeah, because yeah. you realise you can't reason with them. It's a cult. No, you can't. There was nothing. I, I, I felt like I had a responsibility to stay fair and reasonable and calm. But when I was faced with we can decide what can be printed, if it offends us, we won't print it. This is an extraordinary moment, Linda, of huge significance because the essence of a printing press is you can't have free speech unless you can have access to a printing press sort of thing, right? It's like the internet or Albert Park to have silence while you speak. So, so they are denying your free speech rights and your ability to assemble, to organise a meeting. Every basic Bill of Rights issue for a free citizen is offended by these young women at the photocopier in the warehouse. I mean... It's extraordinary. If I turned up there with a green poster for the Green Party and they denied printing it for me, there'd be hell to pay or an Act Party poster. If I turned up there and saying, come the communist revolution, there'd be hell to pay. We know the extraordinary circumstances that have happened where a gay couple turns up here and overseas and say, I'd like a nice gay cake made and uh, for our wedding. And they look, and I just, I'll make you a cake, but I just can't be involved in the wedding part because I don't believe it. Oh, it's hell to pay, right? You've got to marry us or whatever. And here you are wanting a poster made. It doesn't matter the cause, but you're being denied that opportunity. But the thing that makes it ironic, shocking, hard to, impossible to comprehend is that the topic of the meeting is that a woman is a woman, a man is a man, a woman has a right to spaces that are private to men and sports that exclude men. Most basic, it's not like a tough political issue or you're not trying to overthrow the established order, you're trying to preserve humanity, motherhood, apple pie. And these young girls are saying you can't have your poster. It's it's 
It's the most extraordinary development to me. It was mind-blowing. It, it was wonderful in, the, in what it did for me on that day was it galvanised me and I, I got a real understanding of the battle lines that were being formed. And it was um, International Women's Day. That was the day. And I had made a banner that said woman with sequins because, you know, and double X. And I walked, I left the warehouse stationery. I drove a few years, not a short distance up the road to a, a major roundabout in the town that I live. It's a teeny tiny ridiculous roundabout that everyone has to go around really, really slowly. I think they were drinking gin when they laid the road out. So I took my woman's banner and my first prototype of, type of Let Women Speak and I stood spontaneously in the sunshine holding these banners, waving them and singing badly. I just did a happy dance. On your own? On my own. I just stood there. People were beeping and waving and winding their windows down. <laughs> At the moment... In that, I was getting terribly sunburned and I was had no water. I was just impromptu. I was just like, I'm just going to just, I'm just, you girls are just like, oh. Anyway. I this, woman hear me roar. Yeah. We're singing the suffragette song and I was dancing. I was having a fabulous time all by myself. And um, people were taking photos of me. I think they thought I'd lost my mind. Anyway. Um, this car came up to the roundabout and beckoned me over, the man in the passenger seat. And because, you know, I'm always up for a convo, I walk over to the car and I'm holding the sign and he says, he just kind of, I get really close and he goes, tell me something. And you may have to edit this one out, Rodney. And I said, women don't have penises. Well... They burst into fits of laughter, <laughs> their windows down, beat the horns and yelled something out the window about what men don't have. Isn't that great? And I went, okay, I can go home now. These young men, I didn't know what they thought I was going to say because <laughs> I was holding let women speak, right? So they wanted me to come over and say something. How cool was that? How and cool in that, that moment, I thought, what can I? They were in their swannies and they were, you know, country bumpkins and everything. And they were the, I, I know these kind of people well. And I just said what I said. And he just, I don't think he expected that because I don't fit the box of somebody that might. And say of course, how, what a contrast to the woman at the warehouse. They got it. These guys got it like that. The interesting thing, too, is that at this stage, the media were running hot on attacking Kelly J. Mm -hmm. And in particular, she was spreading her hate. She was spreading her misinformation. And while she might be clever enough not to present as a Nazi, she was Nazi adjacent. And the implication being that if she had her way, people that didn't fit her category would be off to the gas chambers. Is that fair compilation or summary of what the sort of media yeah. outrage was? It, was? it was like a witch hunt. It was as if it would matter not a 
toss what anyone said contrary to that narrative. No. It was gaining momentum um, from the politicians across the board. It was, you know, the Green Party were the biggest champions of this and many Labour MPs up here in Auckland were, I've since found how they they came to that day and were so celebratory and everything. So, yes, that's exactly right. And the peculiar thing was that Kelly J, who's about letting women speak, none of the media presented one thing that she was saying. They just asserted what she was or what the implications were or what she was adjacent to. That was totally propagandized and smearing, defaming, libeling, and provoking of violence. Because if you think someone is a Nazi, it's all on, right? I, I was called a Nazi by Chanel. I call him Chanel. Man. This is Chanel Lull, who's New Zealand was in the New Zealander of the Year or something, and yeah. was the Herald correspondent was going on all the media, funnily enough, engaging in exhorting people to violence. He organised it. He organised it. Now, tell me, your father knew exactly what a Nazi was. Mate, now you're going to get me emotional. It's that's real the, That's it's the peculiar thing. real for me. For someone to call my father's daughter a Nazi, mm. it was like a dagger blow. It was like... I know what a Nazi is and a fascist. Mm. And I was, you know, it sat me on my, on my ass, mate, when someone called me a Nazi. Linda's and dad. I was a Nazi more than once, up close and personal, before that Saturday. So I was called a Nazi by a young man called Xavier Walsh, who was the gentleman that went around plastering all the posters all over the band rotunda and who came and spoke to me. And uh, when I, I went to the band rotunda to meet the sound man and the posters were on the band rotunda and it was calling us Nazis and he interacted with me on that day and called me a Nazi. Your dad went right through World War II with the New Zealand Battalion. He drove a Bren gun carrier. Yes. He carried shrapnel on his head till the end of his days. Yes. He came out of the war being advised not to have children because he wouldn't live to see them. Yes. And he died in your loving arms, age 94. 98. 98. See, you should never tell us that we can't do something. It's in our blood to defy them. And you grew up in his, I'm going to say shadow, but yes. mentorship, knowing exactly what free speech and freedom were, because that's what he was fighting for. And he was fighting Nazis. Yes. And you turn up to the band rotunda, and there's a Xavier Walsh calling you a Nazi. It's horrific, Linda. It was like some kind of crazy out-of-body experience. It was yeah. like, you know, like you, you, you stand there and you – you're in that moment. It was a bit like those girls. You're in that moment when it's so, it's, it's, I'm trying to kind of get my thoughts around how do you respond to somebody that's saying that to you? But that's no, how they win because you can't respond. I just looked at him and said, I don't think you know what a Nazi is. A bit like you don't know what a woman is, right? 
<laughs> and look at me and I said, I said to him also in my conversation with him, I said, so you're, you, he said to me, what is a trans woman? And I said, a man. Exactly. And he said, no, a trans woman's a woman. And I said, no, I'm a woman. See, look, this is real life. This is a woman. I'm a woman. You had this conversation with them at the band rotunda. Yeah. And then we were, it was going back and forth, and I was trying to think, is this something that I could say to this young man that maybe would make him consider his position? And I said, so the problem with you saying that a man assuming a female identity is in fact a woman is that they are now in our New Zealand female prisons. Violent men. One violent man who stabbed his ex-girlfriend because she wouldn't accept him transitioning. And he's in a woman's prison. Are you okay about that? And he said, well, a trans woman's a woman, so that's okay. But more importantly, the construct, except <laughs> by university, the construct of prisons is a bigger problem. And really, we should be having a, a much more in-depth conversation with oh, about that. And I was like, so you can't actually answer my question that you're okay with a violent man assuming a female identity is currently in the women's prison here in New Zealand. You can't answer that you're okay with that or not. No, I can't because prisons are the problem. They've got an answer for everything, haven't they? Tell me about this Xavier Walsh who was calling you a Nazi. Yes. Was he a young guy? Yes. He's a young man who is currently at university, and when I questioned him about the posters, I said I was just looking at these posters. I'm not, I, I said, I didn't know. I don't know who's been putting them up. Well, he had a bag over his shoulder with posters in, a bottle of glue and a paintbrush. <laughs> and, and he goes, well, clearly these are, this is, I'm doing it. And I said, you do realise this is a heritage building, this rotunda, and, you know, I can't stop you putting posters up, but do you think you should be putting them on this beautiful old building? Why don't you go and put them on rubbish bins and everywhere else? I actually reported that to the police that day because I'd had a phone call not half an hour before that from the head of the Tamaki Makaro police negotiating team. So I called out of the blue, rang me and told me that their job was to keep it all calm and all the rest of it. And so I texted to this man and said, can someone come and remove these offensive posters off the band rotunda? Can we get the ball rolling? Can it be reported? He said to me, can you go back up and take photos? I went back and said, I'm not really keen to go back and have a second confrontation with this young man because I think we both took each other a bit by surprise and maybe the element of the surprise is gone. (laughs) Yeah. And I said, but okay, if I must, and I walked a long way round, Xavier saw me coming and ran, which was my little victory for that moment, and I took the photos, sent them to um, Sergeant Donovan, who said, I'll send them up the line. He subsequently responded to me to say nobody's going to do anything. So when I got home, which was about 2.30 on that day, I did a um, graffiti report with Auckland Council to say these posters were going up. How did you get Xavier? How did you get Xavier's name? Oh, because he was interviewed for TV for the news that night. 
they interviewed him up at the park and put his name. That's how I knew his name. Okay, we'll come to that. Proudly. Proudly. Um, The funny thing is, I would never graffiti something and I'd never confront a woman. But when I was 17, 18, 19, I was highly idealistic, very easily manipulated, and believing in the environmental cause. And I was convinced that the world was massively overpopulated and we need to get rid of about 6 billion people or something, right? And I was fanatical. And I have a friend who was a a very successful businessman, and he said when he was 18, he would have happily, at university, he would have happily driven down Colombo Street shooting people if it furthered communism, because he'd been a hardcore communist. And it's a funny thing when you're young. That idealism that you have, that innocence of how the world works, can be made to turn extremely ugly by other people you know, university lecturers, other activists. And I can understand that guy thinking like I was on the environment. I thought the planet was going to be destroyed. And it was so bad that we're all going to hell in a handbasket, you know. And it's crazy. But I was a bit that way. And I wasn't all the way there. I met Rod Donald. He was all the way there. It's a, it's, it's, it's a shocking thing. So carry on. You did all that. You're now getting a sense that tomorrow, presumably it's the next day, or it's going to happen? Yes. So um, I did get a sense. I was starting to get, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck are starting to prickle, and I'm concerned. I'm concerned that a simple task of removing these posters is being rejected. That was my first kind of... Oh, hmm. yes. So it's not just now your opposition meeting these women at the warehouse and Xavier, it's now the fact that the authorities aren't upholding the law and are not actually on your side. Yeah, so that was the first moment when he responded, said, no, I'm not going to do anything, because I was driving home from the city and I got the text back to say by the time I got back to my car, which was on the 16th level of Victoria Street car park, it's the butthole of the car park, mm-hmm. it's the part that got tagged on and it's a mission to get in and out of. By the time I got back into my car and checked my phone and saw that he wasn't going to do anything and I was like, that's interesting. So... I drove home, and as soon as I got home, I opened my laptop and made an online complaint, downloaded the images of the posters, and sent it through to council graffiti, Mm -hmm. which was significant as it turned out the next day. So also just to clarify my sense that the police were also concerned with Kelly J and her safety, I had got a call on Thursday from Sergeant Sean Richardson, just out of the blue. I was actually looking after my grandchildren and he asked me if I could give him Kelly J's accommodation information and her flight details because they were they were concerned about her safety and they wanted to go and check out the hotel to make sure that all the safety protocols were in place. Jeepers. And I was like, whoa, okay. I said, first of all, it's a bit like the French Foreign Legion. I don't have any of that information. (laughs) Like, it's outside my information. 
So you can torture me and I still won't be able to tell you. <laughs> but I said to him, look, just send me through your email because for some reason I hadn't noticed that he'd been CC'd on all the other emails. Okay. You know, like I hadn't been looking so I didn't see. I think it's not uncommon for people to not realise who their emails are yes. being sent to. So I said, look, I don't know this information, but if you give me your email address, text it to me, I'll forward your email and your phone number to the person I think knows that information or mm -hmm. they will pass it down the line to get that for you. Mm -hmm. And we all know because Kelly J told everyone what happened. Her hotel got cancelled. She had oh, to get I moved. No, sorry, and I did not know. So the hotel that was divulged to the police cancelled her booking. Oh, um, wow. Then she was rebooked into another property. Do we know? Do we know the sequence of that? The police turned up, and they thought this is too hot to so handle. Or, or what happened? Asked for the information. I forwarded their request to the Let Women Speak contact that was above me, and. Ironically, I followed that up with a, I don't know if you should be sharing it with the police or not. I rang. Yeah. After I shared this, this request. Yeah. No, I, I understand said, perfectly what you're saying. I said, I'm passing this request along. My gut is not 100% about this, and I'm not sure whether you should be sharing it. I can see your concern. But it's not my call. So that was, I left it at that. Now, I had no idea what happened after that until after it all happened. Can you so, tell us what happened? So what happened was that was the last that I I didn't have any touch that again. Yeah. I was busy doing my jobs for the event, feeling more and more anxious and more and more pressure. I was under a huge amount of pressure. I was I had no help. It was just me. There was no other physicist, nobody else helping me. I'd been given an event to implement. So someone in the core had filled in all the paperwork and done all the things, and then it got handed on. Good and place. then I picked up all the roles that were needed to be done on the ground in Auckland because I was the only person in Auckland doing it. And no one was stepping forward to help me do any of this. So I was just running around like a mm. headless chicken doing what I could. So I didn't touch this again. So what subsequently happened was the police were told where her hotel was and were told her flight details. When Kelly J was flying from Australia to New Zealand, her hotel room got cancelled. The police had contacted the core, the person that I had connected to them and said they didn't think that hotel had enough security and they were concerned. Oh, that's right. And then, sorry, there's a bit of a detail in there. So in that conversation asking for Kelly's, we're concerned about his safety, Sean Richardson said, we will make sure that there are squad cars in and around that area should they need to be, be there quickly, that they are aware of where she's staying. Jeepers. So that if they need to go to that hotel, they're not across. There are already people know that. So, you know, it was right in Central City. It's like they could get run from the police station, let's be real. But anyway, this is what he said. I was very kind of like, wow, you're really taking this safety thing quite seriously. I was impressed. Um, anyway, 
She was outed. She was kicked out of her hotel. They put her into another location. Um, of course, the press met her at the airport, how they knew the flight she was arriving in on or where she was coming from because she'd taken a domestic flight to an international flight to get here, but they were waiting for her at the airport. I didn't know when she was arriving or anything. I knew nothing of that. I didn't know where she was staying. She was taken to her hotel, her new hotel, and she got a threat put under her door. No. Yes, a written threat was put under her door. I'm not sure if it was there when she arrived, but she changed rooms after being dropped off at this hotel. She moved rooms. Um, how that was known, don't know. Um, was the threat put under the door before she changed rooms? Yes. My understanding is that's how it worked. Kelly the, J, a YouTube thing yeah. on this. And, and so the change of hotel, putting a good positive spin on it, was presumably the police doing a good thing to find a safer hotel for her, you think? That was, I, I, my impression was, and it's no one's spoken to me directly. Yeah. Um, but my impression was that there was a certain confidence in the police taking Control. a possible threat seriously and yeah. putting systems in place. And shifting her room place. and getting her room shifted. Okay. Yes, all and good. all of those things. So, um, and I had no idea where she was. Um, no one communicated any of this to of me yeah. as police liaison officer, head yeah. marshal, setting up the event. I had no knowledge of any of that happening. Yeah, okay. Because um, if I had, I might have made a different decision what I, in my, what I did on that Saturday morning. Okay, carry on. To be honest. Yeah. Um, because now it was a real and present threat. Yes. You know, like it was tangible. I have seen that in the movies. It's like a clear <laughs> and present danger now, right? And you, <laughs> through happenstance, a head liaison person, head marshal, sorry, and police liaison, and there's now technically a clear and present danger that the police are involved in shifting a hotel. There's a written threat. They have access to her room door. The police shift her door, and the police are saying we'll have squaddies around the place ready to go. This is serious stuff now. This is a head of state visiting. And yet they never came back and said anything to me. No, got it. Okay, so carry on. Are escalating, mm -hmm. so they've they've got my number. Mm -hmm. Nobody called me, mm -hmm. so I load and up all the fences. I had to physically go and get all the fences. You did the fences. <laughs> yes. I assume the security company would have done the fences. No. No, I borrowed a friend's trailer. My husband and I drove in to Takanini, collected all the fences, um, brought them home, drove them in, and it, it had been arranged by the Auckland City Council that they would drop the bollards 
so that um, we could drive the trailer in and set up this, these crowd control fences. Yep. So they weren't security fences. They were just a demarcation line. Mm. They were never there. The, the, the intention of these fences was never to barricade anyone in, no. but only to make a clear area of where this was an official event sanctioned by the Auckland City Council, approved by the police, who had a four-hour meeting on the Friday morning to go over this event. They rang me by mistake because the Auckland Council lady thought I was the police. Duh. And she rang me and told me this was happening. I spoke to Sean Richardson after this meeting, said everything was fine. Anyway, I drive, I drive myself in first in my car and I meet, I'm supposed to, it's been organised that there will be someone there to unlock these bollards and drop them so we can drive into um, Albert Park. No one's there. I had arranged to meet the police at 8.30. They weren't there. Um, and then a rub one of those caged rubbish trucks that empty all of the public bins turns up. So I thought, oh, he's going to drop the bollards for me. Great, we're back on track. He had no idea what I was talking about. But fortuitously, he dropped the bollards for himself to drive in. So I followed him in and parked my car um, outside the um, caretakers, the, the heritage caretakers cottage. Well, first of all, I drove over to the rotunda, unloaded my banners, all the things that I had bought, the posters, everything, unloaded all of that. Then I drove my car and parked it over by the caretakers cottage. And then I realised the bollards had gone up. Mm. And I was... Shit. So then I'm going through my phone numbers and I ring the number I've been told to ring for Auckland City Council, get an answer phone. So then it says ring this 0800 number. So I ring the 0800 number and you get all like 62,000 options. Press one for this. And I'm panicking by this point. Of course. And I'm not really listening to the quest, the thing, so I just press no. the numbers. I just press numbers hoping a human will answer. Of Unfortunately, course. not so lucky. It just went to another set Number. of options. So then I'm like, I'm panicking. I can't find Sean Richardson who had agreed to meet me there. I can't find Sergeant Donovan who had agreed to meet me there. And I'm, I, I decide I'm just going to start tying my banners on the rotunda and do what I can whilst I try and regroup. And I'm messaging my husband who was coming with the trailer behind me with all the fences. And I said, where are you? Where are you? And he said, I'm, I'm just a few minutes well. I'll be there in a minute. And he turns up and he's parked outside the park. And now I've got all these fences. I've got no help. And I can't get into the park with the trailer. And now these fences have to be carried on. So my husband eventually, um, I ran across to the workman and the work site and said, could you guys just give us a hand for five minutes and carry them? I was running around to anyone in the park saying, can someone just help me carry these in? All this time, no police. I'm trying to ring the council and still no answer. I rang the police, no answer. Anyway, eventually we get the fences in and some angels turn up and help 
put the fences up, following my instructions, like to military precision. I've got my instructions. I'm giving them. Do not deviate. This is what our event said. That's where we were at. So that was how my start Saturday started. You don't need to know I was up all night vomiting with diarrhea. Um, that was just an added bonus to the day. I hadn't eaten for 24 hours and I was feeling shy. Council didn't turn up. Police didn't turn up. I'm having to ask any Joe blog that happens to be walking through the park. And whilst all of this is happening, Chanel comes over and introduces himself to me. And I'm well, that like... Was, that was nice. It was a little moment. What did so he, he say? And he said, are you doing the event? And I said, yep. I didn't know who he was. I have to confess, he may be famous in his own lunchtime, but I had no idea who this man was. And he was there with this lovely young Polynesian woman, and they start very pleasantly talking to me, and she introdu I introduced myself. He wanted me, she introduced herself, and then he introduced himself. And then when he said his name, something in my mind triggered and I went, oh, you're that man that goes around saying really horrible things about women. He said, yeah, that's me. Oh, he, well, at least he owned it. He owned it. So I said, well, at least I've got the guy right. You are that guy. Anyway. Just, just one clarification, uh, Linda. Yeah. Your little stomach upset the night before. Yeah. Is yes. that nervousness or something else? No, I picked a bug up from my grandchildren. Okay, carry on. So you're you're not well. Okay, carry on. Yeah. So no, I was I was nervous. I was anxious. I, I was. Bet, like, I would. I would be beside myself, and I'm like you. But it was just an added bonus that I physically was sick as well. As, yes. as it was a kind of like a double whammy. My my brain was running at a million miles an hour, and my body was trying to keep up, and it wasn't doing very well. But I just thought, no, I just got to keep moving. I just got to keep moving. I've got to Good get this done. I've said I'm going to do it, and I'll do it. And then we're having this meeting with Chanel Lau. Oh, he decided he needed to come in and introduce himself. And he informed me that he was organising this counter-protest, um, and he wanted to know how we were setting up, because at that stage he must have arrived just before all the fence. That You know, it was still a bit of yeah. a mess. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it's a it's a fully sanctioned, um, locked and loaded event with Auckland City Council. If you want to know how we're setting up, just ring them. I'm not going to tell you how I'm setting up. Good. You know, right? I didn't tell him. And um, then he said, and I said, so I was expecting some protesters, but you're not going to hurt us, eh? You're just going to make a bit of noise. We're going to say what we're going to say, and it's all going to just go Great. He said, no, we're just here to be present. You know, like our physically a present. A yep, to what's going on. And off he toddled. Well, he's kind of, yeah, toddled isn't the right word for that greasy man. But anyway, he left. I needed a shower and I just carried on. Like being in the presence of that person was not pleasant and I'm, Anyway, so I carried on. Fences went up. Eventually, um, I was 
everything kept moving forward. The fences went up. The the lady who was going to be um, on the stage with Kelly J um, assumed control, and I just carried on with my marshal's role because she had said, you know, I, so – I waited for the marshals who arrived late and I'm panicking. Where are you? The noise is going and it's building and it's building. And have I the police, have the police my, have the police arrived yet? No. So I um Chanel came back again and I was up on the rotunda and he started talking to the two women from the core and he said, Look, I'll just go get the police for you. And I heard him say this, and I shouted down, it's all right. I'm talking to them directly. In fact, they weren't returning my calls, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to let this man in a pink suit somehow think he was doing any favours, right? You just piss off is what I wanted to say to him. And he and even the woman looked at me like, why is she reacting like that to this man? And I, my instinct was this man needs to be far away from us. Just like, do not speak to him. Be far from this man. This is not the time to be nice. Anyway, then um, I came down and I ran out to a young police officer and said, I'm looking for Sean Richardson. And they said, he's just coming around from the trees. So I ran around and he was on the perimeter of Albert Park, walking through the trees over by Princess Street. And that's when I found him. And I said, where were you? You were supposed to meet me at 8.30. He said, I was here at, at 8.30. You weren't here. I was here at 8. You weren't. Now, I know for a fact he wasn't because my sound technician was there at 8 o'clock because I had originally said, I'm pulling my top clock forward and I'm going to be there at 8 o'clock. I was feeling a little bit like the three little pigs and the big bad wolf and I just needed to get there before the house got blown down. And, of course, I was sick. And so I couldn't, I, was, I didn't get there till 8.30. And I had a phone call from my sound technician at 8.25, basically saying, where the hell are you? You said you'd be here at 8 and I got that call as I was getting off the motorway to just turn into Princess Street. So I was there at precisely 8.30. I spoke to Tony, who did our sound, and he said he was the only person there. There were no police, nobody. So Sean Richardson's first lie to me that day, on that day, was that he had turned up and I was the no-show. So I guided him over to where the fences were, and I said, are you happy with how this is all set up? Is this as per your expectations? And notably, now when I think about it, he never stepped inside those fences. He stood on the outside of the fence, didn't step in, even though at that point that was pretty, it was just a little bit of noise and a bit of music. He didn't step in, and then he just disappeared. What was his demeanour? Pleasant. A little bit miffed because I challenged him on not being there at 8.30 mm. and his response was, well, I got here before you and you weren't here and I, I was busy and couldn't wait around. Okay. And then he disappeared. What tell me that I knew was when Chanel, Chanel was talking to me, he got a text 
from Sean Richardson or a call to meet him. Chanel did. Sickening. And that's why he stopped talking to me. He said, I've got, I've, this is a call from the police. They want to meet me. And off he went up to the his um, his gathering area, which was at the other end of the park. And when I found Sean Richardson, he was coming from that end of the park. I can, somebody else can join the dots. And I, it's a bit spooky when you said that Chanel Lau said, I'll get the police. Yeah. Because the police yeah. were following his instructions. Yes. I'll get the police for you. And um, that rainbow and, tick, that rainbow tick isn't just symbolic, is it? No, it really isn't. It really, really isn't. And it was a, the realization that day that every there was not one police officer in that park that protected any women. It was like somebody had told them they couldn't get closer. You're not allowed to be closer than this point to the Bandro Tunda. It was like some magic force field, and the police stood behind that. So even when at the end of the day when these women were being boot-marched and spat at as they came out, the police never went in. They waited until the women got to a certain point, and you'll see all the camera footage that's been out there is the police meet them when they're well outside the danger zone, when they're almost out of the park, and then they're the heroes. What you don't see is the women, the police are around the women, the women are walking out, these individual women, warriors. You know, like I get a bit emotional when I think about them because holy moly, they're walking out, the police meet them, they step outside the park onto the footpath, this mob follows them, the police stop. They don't go with these women from that point, they stay at the park and I'm begging the police to say, you need to stay with these women till they get safely to their cars. One police officer said they told us they didn't need us. I'm looking at, the, looking and watching, and I'm like, I don't really care whether they said that. It's not for them to decide whether you're supposed to be there to protect them. That's your job. I got pretty animated to quite a few police officers that were just hands in their pockets, hands in their pockets. And we're now getting to the point where the crowd is gathering, the protest is gathering, the noise is getting loud. There's a union bus with Xavier Walsh on it making noise. Sean, Sergeant Sean Richardson has come but pointedly not stepped into the bull ring or across the banner where the woman will ultimately be. And what happened then, Linda? So I went back into my position, um, which was there was um, a fence that had been erected around in a, in a large circle, or almost three-quarters of a circle, and inside that fence I had bought my, um, my pigtails and um, electric fence. It was not electrified, and created a circle for to a demarcation line that created a no-man's land. So I positioned myself back 
in that no man's land and just was, I was dancing. I confess, the music was going, I knew the song. So I thought, I'm just going to show them that I don't care about your noise. And I was getting my boogie on and um, making the other marshals laugh and a few of them. I was trying to um, let everyone know that I was okay. I'm the head marshal, everything's fine, I'm fine, I'm just dancing, carry on. That was my the story in my mind. So I'm doing a little dancing to the music. And during this time, the the, the music was still playing very, very loudly because they had these big speakers on this big red truck bus that was positioned out on Pincer Street. And the only reason that bus wasn't closer was because, ironically, the council didn't drop those bollards for us to drive in, but nor did it allow them to drive in. Right. Because clearly they were going to drive that bus into the park. And effectively the shut, shut the meeting down with the noise. The, the noise was growing and growing. So the music keeps going and then there's this other layer of noise starts coming in and the people are starting to get more and more. So now the circle, which was my outside fence, has now shoulder-to-shoulder people. It's building up shoulder-to-shoulder. And I'm, like, five foot tall, so I don't look over the tops of, like, two rows back and I can see nothing. Technically one row back and I can see nothing, but I like to build big up myself and say I can see two rows back. So I'm kind of stalking this semicircle. I'm this, instructing the semi, on- this semicircle are the protesters that you're – so the protests are on the outside of that yes. fence. I'm inside that fence in yes. between my pigtail cord. Yes. And there's a, there's a big vacant area. And this Got was it. created um, on the back of what we'd seen overseas at the other Let Women Speaks is an area for the police to be in there. Yes. Not to necessarily do anything at all because from what we'd seen, no police had done anything particularly. But at least they would have been a presence, you know, like a speed camera or a traffic officer with it. And it was like a no man's land to keep the two parties apart. It was exactly like a no man's land. It was clear. You could see everything. You know, ultimately that's why there was such good photos taken when it all turned to custard because there was no – our people were some distance away. So the women were quietly feeding in and a few men into this area in front of the rotunda waiting for Kelly J. The protesters were building and the noise was getting louder and louder. And now as it built, it stopped being music and it started just being a cacophony of noise where it was difficult to pick out any particular instrument that was making the noise other than it was this noise. And as the crowd was instructed to move down from the fountain at Albon Park at the other end and they came down the path, there was um, like, you know, it was almost like, right, troops, let's move forward. And this is the the protesters. The protesters. And the surge of humanity just moved down to the area where I was standing. 
the noise was deafening. I, you know, I was trying to keep my marshals just quietly walking around talking to the women's, you know, keep facing the front, don't engage, don't any of those things, excellent, all of that. And then at one point I was, there was a moment where I just thought, where the hell are these police? We really just need the police to come in here. My gut instinct was saying that that we cannot, clearly cannot control this noise. But at hold on. But at Kelly J Keynes, <laughs> Kelly J Keynes, let women speak. Um, they are wired for sound, and so even though the people at the events may not hear a word of it, all of it is captured globally. You live. Got it. Got it. So it didn't matter what the noise was. The 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 speakers would still get to be heard. Mm-hmm. Their words would be forever on mm-hmm. Got it. social media. And so my feeling in that moment was if the police just come in here, we can still they can still talk. Yeah. Um and we won't hear a word, but it doesn't matter. We can watch it later. You and know, we'll like, in support. Tell me, tell me, um, how many marshals did you have? Five. You had security. Do you know how much security was there? Six. And did you have your radio? No. Could you see the security? No. So the security was at the bound rotunda looking after Kelly J. Keene, presumably. Well, the security must have been the other side of the women I at the base of the band rotunda. Yeah. Yeah. Where okay. I, you know, so and I and to be fair, I wasn't really that concerned because my understanding, well, the rules of the Let Women Speak setup is that um, if a woman's in any kind of peril, she puts her hand up like you do if you're drowning in sea. Yeah. And the other marshals or any security that are there will will go to that woman. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Right. So. They were there. No, they didn't speak to me. They spoke to this other person when they arrived, and no, I wasn't wired to sound. So I can hear nothing. Okay. <laughs> I could, uh, couldn't even hear myself thinking it was so loud. I pull my phone out of my pocket, and I think, I've got to get Sean Richardson in here. So I ring, but then I realise <laughs> I can't hear anything. So... I hang up and I send a text to him saying, we're in danger in here. We need you to come and calm things down. All words to that effect. Can you come in here to me? His response to that in text message was, no, you come out to where I am. I'm still where you spoke to me before, which was I had uh, he, he, where I found him before, which was at the perimeter where they, when I'd met up with him as he ran, was coming around um, by Princess Street under the trees. And um, Simon Anderson, who took 360-degree footage, you see me in the footage. I didn't watch that footage. I, I'm going to full disclose here. I didn't watch that footage that he put up until 
a month, six weeks later. So I had no idea that he had captured any of my movement at all. So when I, so I didn't know this. So I pulled my phone out. My I had sports leggings on, activewear, and my phone was in the little pocket in the side. And I pull it out, and I'm holding it. He says this. So I slide the phone back in my pocket, and I go. If you're facing the Bandro Tunda, I go to the to my left, and then realise that I can't really get out there because there's a huge amount of energy, humans, people on the other side of the fence. I walk around the rotunda and go out the entrance we were letting the woman in, and I ran over to Sean Richardson, and he was standing there with a few other police officers. Um, I'm five foot tall. He's easy six two. My husband's six two, so I have to confess, I don't really notice how tall people are until they get over six foot two because <laughs> I live with someone that tall, so I don't really notice tall. If that sounds a little crazy, but I, on a one-on-one basis, I don't. But he was a, he's a fully grown adult human male in charge, in his uniform, wired for sound, standing there. And I asked him, I said, I need you um, to come in and calm things down. And he said, um, no, I'm not, we're not coming in. And I said, but the woman may well be in danger if you don't. Well, we're not here to protect you. It's not our job. No way. Yeah. As God is your witness, he said that. Yeah. That you couldn't make dis- that up. You couldn't make that up, Rodney. That is disgusting. And, and, and for anyone that Just might to be listen, clear, yeah. he said... A sergeant of the New Zealand police is approached by a grandmother at a yeah. protest where they're well on alert to physical threats and danger. Mm-hmm. You text him and say, we need you, we're in danger. He says, you come to me, which is chivalrous in the extreme. You go to him. And you say you're scared for the woman. They need to turn up and show a presence to calm things down. And his words were, we're not here to protect the woman. Or words to that effect. What was his yeah, exact words? We're not here to protect you as in, as in you, like you. Yeah. Remembering that why, we why do we why do we have a frigging police? Well, I did a big deep inhale and he followed it up with you bring the women out here. If they don't feel safe, you tell them to come out here. And I think that we need to at this moment take a little step into exactly what that environment was in that moment when he said to me to bring the women out. We are now fully circled by thousands of people who were making so much noise you can cannot distinguish what instrument is being making the noise apart from go home Nazis, go home. And I'm not going to say the other things they say because um, 
that's not how I was brought up to use that kind of language, and so I'm not going to. Everyone else can hear it. Um, they had pots and pans, and they were yelling, and they were screaming, and they were just working their way into a frenzy. And even in that time between me running out to see him and speaking to him, it had gone up another notch. He could see the protesters. He had clear vision. He could see the band rotunda. What he couldn't see were the women in behind those protesters. So I had this conversation and I ran back in and I was having a bit of a, like, I just, I, I honestly, I didn't quite know what to do at that point. At no. this point, people were behind the fence. The noise was beyond anything I'd ever imagined in my life. These people that were waiting patiently for Kelly J were silent, facing the rotunda, not engaging in any way. My marshals were just doing this little quiet kind of wandering around behind, just making people in their little orange jackets saying, let women speak. I had a pink one on. And I was trying to formulate in my mind what was my next, what do I do? Like, I don't even know how to get these people out of here. And even if I did, I don't know where I'd be taking them. And would they even follow me? And could they even hear me? And all of this is running through my mind. And in that moment, Kelly J is turning up. And the noise, which I thought was loud, went to a level that, like, it just went mad. So the women in the centre realised Kelly J was arriving and they started clapping for Kelly J, as you do. That's what they were waiting for. Kelly J is brought in. Ironically, my husband walked in with Kelly J because he was out with the ute and that's where they had dropped Kelly off. The police were there. Never walked over to her. Sean Richardson didn't walk over to Kelly Jane's. No. Say to her, your head marshal and, and police liaison has come out and expressed her concerns about the safety of the women. Do you think you should walk in? You would have thought, at the very least, he should have given her the opportunity to create a plan B for these women to speak. You know, get back in the car, drive away, and an announcement made to these women when this, this isn't going to happen or we're going to do this later this afternoon, you know, something, anything. It wouldn't have mattered if only six women had spoken, the ones that would be aware of where they could do this. It really was irrelevant. What I think is really telling is that in Kelly J's live feed, when she turns up, the police of, I don't actually care about the other police, Sean Richardson was there. And I had already said to Sean before this point, not long before, minutes before, come in, I'm afraid, there's clear and present danger here. He refused to do that and said, basically saying your best course of action is for you to come out. Get those women out of there if they're in danger. And I'm still figuring out how the hell to do that. Kelly J turns up, he doesn't say anything to her, and she has walked through, and my husband walked through with her because he was out there with the ute, and he got knocked over, his glasses got knocked off, 
and he got the glasses, he walked in with her, he stepped back off the stage and um, Eli, I'm not going to say it, Eli, who was up on the stage, throws a tomato sauce and then there's this energy change. So when that's happening on stage, what had happened was I had moved, someone had jumped into the circle from the protesters. I had followed them around to that corner where Kelly J was, had walk, was walking in. And the fence, the gates, which is the image that everyone can see of the man in the white shirt and he's just throwing the gate, is right beside where I'm standing. And I look over and there's a fence down and I just quietly walk over to this fence. I know that sounds ridiculous. And I lean down this, excuse me, I just want to pick the fence up. And I'm like, because it just seemed to me, I'll just pick this fence up. They were standing on it. The Trans Alliance, the Trans Liberation Alliance, who were one of the organisers, a big burgundy banner, materialised behind me. I was pushed and shoved because I'm thinking these women are in front of me. And all of this is happening simultaneously. Kelly's up. I didn't know what had happened to Kelly J up on the stage. I'm down in this corner thinking I've got to stop these people getting up to the stage or getting the women or I'm going to stop them. And I'm standing there in my hugeness um, and I turn my back on these people after I've been shoved and pushed and these girls were spitting and yelling at me. I ripped one person's um, mask off and I put my hand up into one of the bullhorns and just pushed it because it was right, like, in my face, yelling. And in amongst all of this, there's um, now been identified two of my attackers um, and one of them is a man with pink hair with moobs and they were all on my, it's just, uh, anyway, he touched me and pushed me. And, as, and the guy with the bandaged hands and the arm shields on, that imagery had been out there for a while, finally some videos come in and it was him that pushed me so hard I was airborne and I was heading towards the rocks at the bottom of the bandage tunder. And because, you know, I just think I had superpowers, I thought I just levitated and landed on my feet. But in fact... My amazing husband happened to be walking because he was in that area. He'd walked Kelly J up. He'd turned and he was walking back. He didn't know who, what or where. He just saw a body, put his hand underneath it and flipped it and turned it, and that happened to be me. Wow. I thought I levitated back onto my feet, but in that moment I was unaware of how I was on my feet. I knew I was heading for the rocks. He caught you. He caught me. He didn't know he caught me until this week when we saw the last week when the video footage came out. But, yes, he just scooped down and, you know, I'm not a big unit, so he just kind of scooped down and flipped me. He saw a woman flying and he flipped me. Um, so all of this is going on. And when one, he flipped me, I turned back at these guys, this man, that had attacked me, and I told him off. 
it's a mother in me. I can't help myself. And then my husband just kind of put his hand on my shoulder and and turned me around because I really was now surrounded and I didn't even know left from right. I, I made my way out of the back of the squirmish and I kind of do a bit of a scan of the area and realise it's just, this is madness, this is really bad. And I run out of the crowd because I've got a pink hivers on and the protester marshals were wearing pink hivers. The people behind that hadn't seen me didn't re- didn't re- know who I was. So I was able to make my way out. I ran out to Princess Street where there was a police van parked and there were policemen sitting in there um, on their mobile phones and they looked like they were playing PlayStation, you know, playing a game on their mobile phones, killing time. Behind the police van was a plainclothes police car and then another plainclothes police car. So I ran up to this van full of police officers, tapped on the window, and they wound the window down. And I said, we need police in there. We need some help. These women are being crushed on the rocks. They're being hurt. I Like I was panicking. And he looked about, he looked like I'd just interrupted him getting his highest score for the day. And um, he wound, he put the window back. There was another woman came over shouting the same thing. And even in that moment, I said, look, I'm police liaison for the, the, he'll listen to me. Don't worry. He'll listen to me, right? Jesus. And then I came away and then I started running to every police officer I could see, um, running, saying, you need to come in. And they're saying, we're not coming in. You need to talk to our commander. I said, point me to where he is. And at that stage, he'd moved further down, um, into the park towards um, Wellesley Street, end of the park, and I confronted Sean Richardson again. He was standing there. And I said, you need to get in and you need to get in there now. Someone's really, really going to get hurt. It is really bad. He said, we're just formulating a plan. And I looked at him and I was just... Oh, a bit like those girls at the warehouse station. I didn't quite know what to do with that information. But my instinct was, if you're not going to go back in there and protect those women, I am. So I ran back around the back rotunda to the side that I'd come out of, which was where the crowd was not concentrating. The crowd was pushing from the side that Kelly had come in on. I walked around to the base of the band rotunda, and there was an elderly lady there who was double walking sticks with boots on. And I, in my, in that moment, I thought, I'm going to help. And she was actually squashed, like she couldn't move, she couldn't speak, do anything. And people were trying to get, give her help. And so I helped to get up onto the band rotunda, and I thought she'll be safe here. I walked in front of Kelly J, looked at her. That was the first moment I'd actually been anywhere near her ever I made eye contact with her and I walked around behind the fence that was holding the let woman speak sign and as I walked around I realized I just walked into another shipload of danger here was I thinking the danger was at the base of the band rotunda trying to get Kelly J but what had happened was 
in that time, which seems like a long time in the telling, but in reality was a very short space of time, they had started to climb over the back of the Bandro Tunda onto the Bandro Tunda. A circle of people had been made had made a circle around Kelly J in front of the band, of this fence. And I walked around and my instinct was this fence is a ha- this is a problem. This fence that I put the fence up there and the sign that I made was on this fence. And in that instance, it's six foot, a little over, it's about six six by about the same. These, this is the construction fence, sitting in concrete orange feet. And my instinct was, this is a problem. I need to protect this fence with my life because this is, this is going to be a weapon. So I stood in front of the fence with a stash, put my arms up, my legs apart, and I stood in front of this fence, like this massive human barrier that I thought I was. And even in my mind then I thought, you know, I'll just put my game face on and that will be enough. My body language will protect me. Well, it didn't. And um, whilst I'm standing there, I had my hands up above my head, like the, the, they surged forward to the fence and they reached over and grabbed the banner because they couldn't see through it. So they wanted the banner to take it off there. I had spent hours making that banner, hours, and they weren't going to get it. So my hands are up, the banner comes over, and I just loop my hands in and wrap it in my arms and hold, and I'm holding it. They then, a group of them, grab me to get this banner and they start throwing me around the banner tunda. The top of the banner had a dowel running through it, a little dowel about the thickness of my thumb, and they smashed the dowel and one man who was blowing a whistle in my face the whole time and attacking me ripped out the broken dowel and started threatening me with this piece of broken dowel about 30 centimetres long with a sharp end because it had snapped. And they were ripping at my hands and they were ripping at everything. And I tried to, I ripped the whistle out of his mouth thinking I could rip it off. And now I've seen an image. Clearly he was a double string holding this Anyway, they attacked me and somehow somebody stepped in and got got un, unraveled them off me. I stepped back and stood by the fence again. Kelly J is still on the, on the rotunda on the other side of this fence. She hasn't been moved. And I'm standing there sort of in a state of shock, holding on to this banner, feeling, you know, quite proud of myself that I saved my my myself and I still had my banner and I was feeling like slightly I won that next thing the noise around me and the energy changes and in that moment the cameras there was a camera crew from one of the main um would tv and Z, whatever it's called I don't watch them but anyway them were there and they'd been there the whole time and their camera energy and everything looked over the side of the banner, which was to my left. What I didn't realise was that that was where Kelly J was being taken off. So they were looking right down. They had the best footage of what happened should the police ever ask them because they had a sound man, a gopher, and the camera on the shoulder filming that 
that altercation that happened. They filmed everything, but they were filming this. And as that was happening, this group of people attacked me again and threw me around the stage for a second time or the rotunda. Helen Hooten caught part of that on her video footage that she did because um, she was up on the stage. And I didn't, I couldn't watch that. She sent it to me, but I couldn't watch it. Like, there's one thing to be attacked. It's another thing to watch yourself being attacked. And um, so Kelly's off the stage. Now some other men step in and um, get me out from this. I was underneath it. Whilst I was being attacked the very first time, my husband is searching for me. He comes into Simon Anderson's camera shop from bottom of the screen, and you can see he's looking, where's she gone, where is she? She won't be far. He climbs up onto the Bandratundan and looks in. He's within feet of me, but he couldn't see me because I was underneath this pile of people. So I get, I, I'm standing now back at the edge of this fence and I'm thinking this, they're going to, and they're trying to lift this fence out and one leg has been pulled out and I'm trying to lift it back into the orange foot and a young man comes down and whispers quietly in my ear, would you like some help with that? Just like, can I carry your shopping bag? It was very bizarre. And I said, yes, please, can you just lift that into the foot? And I'm standing there, and then the next thing that happens is, for me, and this is only my experiences, that a voice comes, an angel, a human angel is beside me, whispers in my ear, Linda, we're going to get you off here. Just stand there a minute, and we'll get you off here safely. No idea. I didn't know who it was. But I thought, okay and I'm just standing at the corner of the fence hoping that I don't get attacked again. And then I get a tap on my shoulder and these amazing men gather this, me and there were some other women there and they create this human chain. We put our head down and we walk out through the middle of this mob. And I, as I walk out, I walk out and I'm like, I'm safe. So the first thing I do is I pull out my phone and I march over to the police again. And I am in each and every one of their faces. My husband finds me. He's been, he, he'd made his way out to the car. Says, get that high-vis jacket off immediately. Try and look invisible. <laughs> um. And um, then I start trying to get the police. I said, there's still women in there. You need to get in there. Then, you know, like I knew there were still women in there. Um, and they wouldn't move, hands in their pockets. You know, I'm trying to shame them. Your mother would be ashamed of you. I, God knows what I was saying. I was trying to say anything that came into my mind that might just touch their hearts and souls and get them to protect these women. Um, and then a little bit of time passes and then slowly you can hear this noise building again. So a little bit dispersed now the crowd because now they've decided to head down into Queen Street to have a go at the other people. And Sorry, who's decided to head down to Queen Street? The protesters. 
And who are they going to? Who are they going to have a go at? So now they're going to go and have a go at Hannah Tamaki, who okay. was yep. her event down in yep. Queensland. I was not really aware of any of this. I didn't realise that's where they dispersed to. Not my gig, not my energy. I'm just dealing with my women and trying to get these women out. So I'm standing out by the police saying, please, you need to get in there. You need to make sure there's no more women in there. And these women start coming out one at a time. And they're being trumpeted out by the small women on walking sticks, older women, one at a time, like picked off one at a time, staunchly walking out. And that's when the police start meeting them. But they only escorted them from that moment when they cleared the crowd almost into where everyone could see and, you know, they'd look really bad looking the wrong way, right, till they got to the footpath at Princess Street and then they just turn around and, you know, start chatting to each other again. And the protesting people marching them, they didn't stop. They would, were marching them down Princess Street, up Princess Street, you know, and as each woman so, came So out, the protesters were controlling their exit and mm-hmm. marching them out at their, le- at their pleasure. I would say what happened was as the women, you'd, only, you'd have to speak to them, but I would say a gap was made somewhere where they could go, oh, there's an exit through this mob, and then they marched them out. It was it was heartbreaking to watch. So I I see I as each woman came out, I walked towards her, and I said, "You can come if you've got nowhere safe to be." My Ute was parked right there. Just get in my Ute and lock yourself inside. But these women were not going to be beaten. They went, "No, we're just going to keep walking." And I said, okay, I'm, I just want you to know there is a safe space here. And I walked into every woman and offered that. And, um, you know, they weren't, it, it, was, it was horrible. And the police did nothing. Like, oh, look, I've seen 10-year-olds do a better job of helping an old lady walk across the street than what they did. It was I don't know how they sleep at night each and each. I don't care if the command came from God himself. When their eyes saw what was happening, they didn't do a thing. Didn't do a thing. Inhuman. It was inhuman. It was it was the most insane thing to watch. And so um, I was there at the park until nearly two o'clock because we had to wait for the council to drop the bollards <laughs> so we could drive in with the ute to get all the all of our stuff. So the bollards went down. There were still a few police around. So I went over to them and I said, we need to come into the park to collect our property. Can you just walk in with us? Because I'm feeling really unsafe here and we need to collect our property. No, we're not here to keep you safe. Exact words. Yeah. That's not why we're here. And I said, 
And and I was like, I don't even know if I responded. I may have responded. Maybe they, they've captured some of the beautiful words that I may have spoken on that day and my terror and frustration, but I have no memory of what I said after that. All I remember is my husband going, don't worry about it, honey. We'll just go in and get it. And he jumped in the ute and drove in. And... Um, and whilst we were gathering up these fences, um, I saw Chanel, Chanel again. I call him a different name. I'm trying not to do that. Um, but anyway, he um, was standing with three police officers just in front of, on the grass in front of the band rotunda where you walk up the stairs. And they were having a lovely wee debrief chat giggling and laughing and chatting, you know, the body no. language. They were looking very happy with themselves. This very stunning policeman with this amazing moustache, you could pick him out in the crowd, and um, two other police officers. And I walked over to Chanel. I said, you said you weren't going to hurt us. What? And he said, well, you shouldn't have brought a Nazi here. I threw my hands in the air and I just walked away. They carried on with their lovely chat. The police didn't move, didn't say anything. They just stood there and chat. They gave, they were giving him a pat on the back. Job well done, Chanel. Your protest was brilliant. That was what I saw. And I don't care what they were saying. Their body yeah. language was saying that. Pat on the he, back, well done. He didn't deny the violence. He justified it to you. Yes, it was justified because Kelly J was a Nazi and all the women that came were Nazis. How many women turned up to hear her, you think? The crowd was probably about 200. Of that, yeah. 150 were women. Okay. How many turned up the protest, do you think? Well... I have to say that I have to um, thank Pride Auckland for letting me know the number because they were told by the police. They put it up on their Twitter page. I thought it was 2,000, but according to the New Zealand Police and um, Pride Auckland, it was 5,000. Either way. 25 to 1. Yeah. Still trying to figure out where that safe spot was, Rodney. Who were the men who spoke to you in the voice of the angel and they, got you to safety? The, they were Helen Hooton's men from the New Democrats. I didn't know that though at the time. Sorry, how, how I don't know Helen Hooton. Or so the Helen is. Um, the leader of a political party. Yes. And she was a, a small minor party and yes. she was there on that day and she came with a group of her men to protect her. I don't know whether to protect her. Or they just came to support her, I think. I don't yes. think anyone thought they were bringing protection. They were just bringing a bit of moral support. They ended up up on the rotunda. I'm not sure how. Helen could tell that story herself. But the, um, they were up there and it was one of these men that actually stepped over between me and one of the violent people and got between. I didn't see him. Like, in as much as it was just a blur of bodies. Mm. But I've describe, seen 
describe for me the woman that turned up to hear Kelly J. Keane. Uh, okay, so what were from, they like? my, from my observation, they were, um, first of all, I have to say they were extraordinarily brave um, because they were somewhat aware there was going to be opposition. This wasn't just let's gather at Albert Park on a beautiful Saturday morning, listen to Kelly Jane, let's go have tea at the art gallery. They knew it wasn't going to be a picnic. Yeah. So they those they were just the tip of the iceberg. Had the threat not been there, we would have probably had th- a lot more. Mm. I spoke to many women that didn't come, that were going to come because their husbands just said, "I don't, I don't want you to go. This is too dangerous." So there were women there from there were young women. Um, I'm saying young women, I'm saying women over 30, 30-ish and above. vast majority of the women with, that were there were my age or within a decade of me. Um, Which is in your 40s, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the one. Um, they were um, passionate. They're the ways they wouldn't have been there. They... Um, Many of them wanted to have an opportunity to take the mic and say something. I don't know what they would have said because they never got that opportunity. Um, and none of them were violent. They were mothers, sisters, grandmothers, and the men that were with them were gentle and passive. They Describe. never came to support their wives and sisters. Describe for me the protesters. Gosh, probably the easiest way, if, if you, for, for point of reference, if you have ever seen a movie about the French Revolution, when they march someone to the guillotine and this crowd forms of primarily normal-looking people baying for blood, and cheering as the head gets chopped off. Yeah, that's it. Wow. That's what I saw. And that's what it was. And the frightening, I mean, I wasn't frightened at all on that day. Even when I was being beaten up, I wasn't frightened because I felt like that I was, I'm going to use a word that probably I've, even as I say it, it seems the only word. I felt like I was in a righteous battle. Yes. And that, that I had angels on my shoulders. Yes. And that I wasn't necessarily there for me. Yes. But I was there for the women that were too frightened to turn up. Mm. I was there for the women who were brave enough to turn up. And I was there for those women that didn't even realise that they should have turned up, that this is actually a problem, that this is a big, big problem. It is a we, righteous, it is a righteous yeah. battle. I but do believe I, 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 I do believe that you have angels on your side. And I believe I, that we're dealing with the devil's work. It's how else to describe it. Tell me I um, remember I made a call. Um I sent a message um, early in the morning, would have been 5 o'clock, 
to the WhatsApp group of people that were on the periphery and different things happening, um, that I was ready to die on this hill. Mm. I just didn't realise how real it could have got. We were very lucky no one died. I'm amazed. Imagine woman being assaulted, outnumbered 25 to 1, and I can't imagine a man saying, I'm not here to protect you, but young, fit police officers, sergeant, saying, we're not here to protect you. It is the most vile, disgusting thing I can imagine. And funnily enough, it's the police that reveal themselves in this story as the bad guys. They yes, an observation I made watching, sorry to interrupt, watching a video of, because um, I've hardened up and I've watching these videos. <laughs> it's taken me this long, but I've I been bet. watching them. And when I talked to you about when I was standing in that, in that no man's I, I, land. I, I understand that, Linda. I've never watched myself dance. <laughs> So you carry on. Good. Anyway, when I was watching this video, there's you see me disappear, and then you start start seeing the fence. A couple of the fences come down. No one moves. In the moment, like round the side where I got attacked, yes, that was different. But in the front, when the fences initially came down. Everyone stood. Those protesters did not step forward. They didn't instantaneously. They, they, did they hesitated. Forward. They could they have been hesitated. stopped at that point. They could have they, been stopped at that point. Right. So so what that showed me, that is if, if the police had been there, even yeah. if the fences had come down, the vast majority of those people would have not stepped forward. Not initially. They would have eventually because it all turned to custard. But initially they wouldn't have. Had the police been there before the fences went down and in enough numbers that um, they were actually a clear demarcation line between the two groups, that wouldn't have happened. And they had the police presence to do that? Well, what I'd been told was that there would be police in the park on that day and there were police on call that would be able to bolster their numbers in a very short space of time mm. if they needed them. So you were assaulted? Yes. Multiple times? Yes. By multiple people? Yes. Multiple women? Were assaulted? Yes. What's been the outcome of that? The most, well, the only outcome that, that has happened um, is that Kelly J is um, the man that threw the tomato sauce on her um, and caught the, the other woman on the stage in that moment. 
has got a date in court. He's been charged, but just with common assault. Um, and he's gone around the world to anyone who wants to listen, saying he's a big victim and that um, even though he planned it on the days before um, and then has had many interviews since that time boasting about doing it, it was according to – so that is there. The lady known as Emily um, who got her face fractured, mm-hmm. horrendous, um, that person um, has had a day in court being charged. Um, then there was this funny little paper mix-up where someone said he'd got. Um, oh yes, yes. Yeah. And this 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 high profile in the public eye, but they mixed up the papers. I'm not saying anything. Um, if my children told me that story, I'd say you know, come on now. But anyway, um, that's going to court. Um, my I later um, put a report in on so on the twenty on that Saturday. Um, not a, I actually had my foot crushed, but I was running on adrenaline and it didn't really. I thought you know when you break your toe and you're kind of playing a game of rugby. I don't play rugby, um, but I know from watching boys play games that they can take quite a hit, carry on the rest of the game and then be in the shower and then suddenly go, whoa. Well, I thought my foot was broken. I was, um, I got home when I drove home that afternoon. Um, I could barely drive home. I was in so much pain. I parked as close to my front door. I rolled out of the car and crawled inside my house. I couldn't put weight on my leg. I spent the next day in A&E and um, fortunately it was, it was not a broken foot, but what it was was a squashed foot, which um, was just as bad. It just doesn't sound as impressive. Yes. Um, so a man with a very large boot stood on my foot and squashed it and I was um, able to walk unaided for six weeks. Um, so that injury, so based on that injury, I spent the next day in A&E, got that sorted. And then on the Monday, I got in my car and um, dragged myself into my local police station to report the assault. I actually rang, but I wanted to do it in person. I was really needed to actually look someone in the eye and give this report. Um, yet again, no police in the police station. I was going to say, we've been here before, right? <laughs> so surprising. When I rang the 105 number, I said, look, last time I was told there were police in the police station, there's not. Do I need to make an appointment to be sure there's someone there? The person on the 105, no, no, you can just take us. There's always police in the police station. I said, well, not that I've got a lot of experience with this, but that hasn't been my experience but I'll take your word on it. So I went in, um, I limped in with my walking stick and oh, I was a mess, um, only to be given, um, taken my name and said someone will call you. I drove home. I was so angry, Rodney. I was in apoplexy. So I came home, I grabbed my folding chair 
and my Let Women Speak banner and some duct tape, and I drove up to the largest roundabout out here where I live, and I sat down in the middle of the roundabout. I put duct tape over my mouth, and I held the banner over my shoulder in front of me. I got up a couple of times, and cars were going all around me, and there were some people doing the garden. They rang the police. And they came over to me and said, we, we've been told by our supervisor we've got to ring the police. I said, please, you're doing to, me a favour. I'd love to. I want to talk to the police. <laughs> so, you know, I, called my I said, mate, you're my new best friend. Ring the police. because She said, we don't think you're safe here on this roundabout. And I said, the irony of those words are not lost on me. <laughs> So <laughs> you should have said so. What will the police do? Because they tell me they're not here to keep yeah, me safe. Yeah, I said I feel safer here than I did yesterday in Albert Park on um, Saturday in Albert Park with the police. So, with the police. So the midges came and got me. So I re recamped, decamped, and I moved over to this triangle area where it's designed for people to walk across. Yeah. And the police came past, and I thought, "Yay, the police are coming!" But no, they were just on their way to somewhere else, but then a car being towed broke its toe. So they came back around the roundabout and said, we want you to get off this area. You're not safe. I said, no. No, I'm not moving. And they said, no, I'm not moving. So I sat back on my chair and I put my duct tape on and I'm holding my banner. They sort out the broken down toe. They come around to me. And they gesture for me to, you know, that police gesture when they're telling you to go somewhere. And I'm just, no, nah. shaking my head, no, nah. I'm good here, thanks. You come to me. I'm not having another police officer say, you come to me, not I'm going to you. So anyway, long story short, eventually they came over and I said, I'm not leaving. Well, you can't be here. This is not a pedestrian area. I said, well, what the hell is it then? And um, I said I was, you know, anyway, after a lot of very, very, he told the police officer told me I was a very unpleasant woman, one of the most unpleasant women he'd ever had anything to do with. Oh, you must but be anyway, the police. And I was, <laughs> I was like, mate, you need to get out more. Um, and eventually we arranged that I would go into the police station um, the following day, and he was going to rearrange his calendar, put himself out, come on in. And I arrived, I was supposed to be there at 7.15, and I arrived at um, 7.30, I was late. The police station was locked. He texted me. So I'm driving and he texts me. I don't get a text because I got my phone on safety. I don't take pick up my phone when I'm driving. Last time I looked, it was against the law, so I don't. So I'm sitting in my car, my door's open, I'm, I'm exhausted just from getting there. This man comes over to me and he says, can I help you? And I said, I'm trying to speak to someone in the police station. He goes through the back door, the guy comes out. Four hours later, I finish giving that statement. He tells me at the end of giving me my... Um, my giving me my statement, uh, taking my statement, that he was forwarding this statement to Sean Richardson. And I was like, I, you, I was dumbfounded. 
I could not believe it. When you say it. it took four hours to get your statement, did you talk for four hours or did you have to wait around? Oh, he dragged it. Man, it could have been done in a lot less time if he hadn't been a misogynist. Hmm. He said my name at least 50 times. So every time he started a sentence, he said my name. Hmm. He told me he didn't know where Albert Park was and he wasn't aware of what had happened. Then he told me he'd spoken to Sean Richardson. Then he said he still didn't really know where it was. That's in Mount Albert, isn't it? He was being... Deliberately thick. Deliberately, yeah, yeah, deliberately thick. And I, and, I did... And, and yeah. was your complaint about your assault or about the police's behaviour? About my assault. I chose not to... I, yeah. I said there were police there and this is the environment I was in, but this is the assault. I, my point of going there was about my personal assault and not about the police action or inaction. At that moment, I just felt like I needed, I had, I was injured um, and someone did this to me and someone should be accountable for hurting me so badly. Um, and so I filed a complaint and I've got a number and everything else. And, um, yeah, so um, nothing. I um, haven't heard a word. I contacted, I went online and made an inquiry. I followed up with a phone call just recently. I just thought, you know, things take time and I really don't know if I want to deal with this. And, you know, and then I thought, no, I need to get my ass into gear and, and follow up on this. So I sent in a online um inquiry based on the fact that a whole lot of video evidence and my attacker had been my two of my attackers had been caught on video and named well one's been named the other one hasn't yet and um and they they are directly connected with the trans liberation alliance who is connected with chanel who's connected with auckland pride so you know i'm no detective but i think they could find them so that spurred me on to ask the question. So then I rang the 105 number and I was told that my file has not been assigned to an officer. And once it's assigned to an officer, then someone will be in touch. But that if I do have any photos or videos, you can send them, people can send them into that file. And if it's in a video, then they can put it on a stick and take it into the police station. Wonderful. Um, and I said, okay, but if it's not been assigned, when will it be? You know, nothing's happening with this, and this happened in March. It was very high profile, all the rest of it. And um, I was told, well, nothing will happen until nobody's going to look at anything. Are the police useless, misogynistic, don't care about women being beaten or living up to the rainbow tick? And those, those are all statements of fact, I think. Yes. What's your view of the police at the present moment? I don't trust them. I wouldn't go out at night, and if I had a, a flat tyre, I'd bring the mongrel mob, mob to come and change my tyre. Mm. I I have to say I had a very high regard for the police. I, I, um, I felt that the police, you know, were doing a really difficult job. Not I'm not talking about this day. I'm talking about before yes. this. Um, 
I believed that, I mean, I, I believe that a lot of police resources go onto traffic where, it's un, where it seems to me um, misspent money. Um, but I honestly thought that that violent crime, no matter what form it took, would be something that the New Zealand police, the minister of the police, the cost, whatever the people are, who I never knew their names, but the hierarchy to the very top, that up there in the list of important things was women's safety in New Zealand, children's safety in New Zealand. And we're not talking, I've come away from this going, we know that women get hurt behind closed doors and often no one can see that. But on this day, there were no closed doors. It was a beautiful, spectacular, sunny Auckland Saturday in one of our really lovely, lovely parks um, and on a heritage band rotunda and the police sacrificed women on that day at the altar of the trans ideology and I stand by that and I'm not going to budge from it and I'm not going to shut up because because so, as much as this is exhausting and I don't want to be in the middle of it, I was in the middle of it. So to recap, it's Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Linda Sutton, the police liaison and Ed Marshall on the 25th of March when Kelly J. Keane came to speak. She came to speak and to let women speak, to give them the microphone and give their view of matters. Some 200 women turned up to hear her, according to the police, as told to the Pride Alliance. 5,000 protesters turned up to drown them out and then went to violently assault Kelly J. Keane and the woman, grandmothers, mothers, sisters, violently assaulted. The police were there, but at a distance. And they said they weren't there to protect the woman. And it was a woman's responsibility to get away. And so they sat playing on their phones, their games. Linda was assaulted multiple times by multiple men. It sits in space. The police's behaviour is no doubt probably deemed acceptable by the hierarchy. And recall that this was an opportunity to let women speak and our politicians, our police and the protesters and our legacy media all worked and conspired to shut them down. There's no other word for it. They conspired to shut them down violently. This gender ideology isn't just about some men wanting to wear a fully skirt and play a woman for a day. This is a deep attack on who we are. And anyone that questions it opens himself up to violence. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.